From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, New Concepts in Intraocular Lenses, Part 1. These psychic anterior chamber lenses was often taking, you know, six, seven, eight years. And it could be cosmetically very objectionable and, of course, would create glare once it became large enough. These people look like they had cat's eyes. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Olson declares consulting fees from AMO. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. Once upon a time, intraocular lenses were monofocal prostheses for replacement of the crystalline lens at the time of cataract surgery. But that was way back in the 20th century. Now, intraocular lenses play an important role in refractive surgery and have the potential to cure presbyopia. My guest today and next week is Randall Olson, author of a survey of new intraocular lens technology in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. The interview is sufficiently long and comprehensive to warrant division into two podcasts. We'll hear the first part of the conversation today and the second half next week. You divide intraocular lenses into three categories. Can I can I get you just to tell me what those what those categories are? Well, now uh, we actually subdivided several. So, you know, we talked about phacic intraocular lenses. These are these are intraocular lenses that are used where the patient's own lens was in place. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we talked about uh, the uh, multifocal lenses. And uh, and then and then we talked about uh, accommodative lenses. At the end of the paper, too, we'll we'll be dealing with the blue blocking lenses. Right, and and not necessarily that's a category, but we thought that was a special case with a lot of controversy, so that right. it was worth trying to uh, update what information we had on that. Once more, just by way of of background, let let me ask you: What advantages do phacic intraocular lenses have over keratorefractive procedures? Keratorefractive procedures and, and phacic intraocular lenses have distinct overlap, but uh, there are advantage for the uh, intraocular lens. The one big area is in severe amotropia. Uh, your cornea is somewhat limited depending upon your technique and how you approach it, and there's a gray zone between probably about eight, nine, eight to nine to 12 diopters and uh, on the myopic side, and then once you get beyond there, then the uh, phacic intraocular lenses uh, definitely have a powerful niche that can't be met by corneal surgery. They also seem to have an advantage in regards to um, 
you know, not disturbing the cornea, so there's a certain clarity of vision, and, and almost all head-to-head comparisons in regards to uh, the clarity of vision, the sharpness of vision, the phacic intraocular lenses have often done better. I think part of that is is that most of those comparisons are in higher lo- levels of amotropia, and often, even as you're getting around six or seven diopters, that often you know, the, the visual results fall off a little bit on the corneal side, whereas they they tend to be just about as good throughout the entire range of phacic intraocular lenses. Optically, they seem to do just as well no matter where you are in that spectrum. This is true despite the fact that we can do ablations that are guided by, by wavefront, but that, that there is no, no comparable wavefront technology for uh, phacic IOLs. Actually, there will be soon, but uh, as of now, yeah, even though you can't do that, the fact of the matter is is that uh, we probably, on average, even with our wavefront guided, are, I mean, we were inducing quite a bit more of uh, higher order aberration with uh, some of the original corneal procedures that, that probably, on average, we still are not improving on the underlying corneal situation. And I know that's controversial, but but that's the best explanation people have so far, that um, uh, we're good, but we're not as good as we think we are in our corneal procedures. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of it probably has to do with the fact that um, the uh, corneal edge effect is more important um, in regards to corneal procedures. You know, the the, uh, transition zones, even though we're getting better and better at them, are more obvious to patients than they are with the phacic lenses uh, in that we're sitting right on top of the lens. And uh, the human lens tends to uh, uh, ameliorate some of, the, some of the edge effect, but that the, uh, depending on where you are inside the eye, but particularly that sitting right on the pupil, um, if chosen correctly, pretty well covers the pupil under most circumstances. And uh, what you've got sitting on top of the lens, if it's a posterior chamber, you know, is quite anterior in comparison to, to uh, regular intraocular lenses after cataract surgery, and that seems to ameliorate any of the edge effect as well. So the net result is, optically, uh, they seem to do quite well. I think if your comparisons were, say, oh, minus 2 to minus 5, you know, I think the cornea would do every bit as well and possibly even better. But once you get into the higher levels of amotropia, it's harder, even with our, our wavefront technology, not to induce some subtle uh, level of uh, uh, diminished optical quality. So it's your sense that the break-even point for myopes is, is around minus 9 to minus 12. Where do you think that the, that the break-even point is for hyperopic patients? It's much, much lower. And, uh, I mean, I, I think on the hyperopic side uh, that we usually induce some optical aberration, and, and it's not uncommon to have even some loss of snellum acuity, let alone some other elements of the higher acuity, it's, it's much, much harder to uh, induce a steeper cornea than it is to flatten the cornea and to get appropriate transition so on and the rest. So I think, I think phacic lenses are almost better right out of the chute on the hyperopic side. Even, even certainly, okay, a diopter is probably going to be different, but certainly by two diopters, I, 
I, I think that you're probably better off with a uh, fake contractor lens. In the U.S., where are fake lenses generally placed in the eye? Well, right now, uh, it's virtually all of them have been iris-supported because that's the only approved lens we've had until just recently. I mean, just what, within the last six weeks or so, when the first posterior chamber lens, the star lens, has finally been approved. And uh, the, any approval process takes a while for people really to ramp up. So, so of the fake lenses that are going in, you know, it's virtually, it's got to be 98, 99% are iris-supported lenses. But the posterior chamber lens, um, you know, is going to start moving up and taking a significant chunk of that. And, uh, and the anterior chamber lens, and probably the first one to be approved in that, from everything I've been told, and I don't have any control of the FDA, they march the tune of their own drummer, so, but this is the best guess I have, is that the Alcon anterior chamber lens is probably the first of the um, anterior chamber phacic lenses to get approved. Now, what is the track record for iris-fixated phacic lenses? It's very good, actually. Um, it generally has been reserved for higher, higher levels of amitropia, and uh, uh, the overall track record with it uh, has really been quite impressive. I mean, I, uh, the complication rate has been very low, and uh, uh, I say that as much of anything as is it, you know, at, uh, at, uh, with the David Apple Center for Biodevices at the uh, University of Utah, we get... We get most of the complications and get a pretty good idea when things aren't working from an intraocular lens standpoint, and and uh, we hear something about every phase of lenses, but we really have heard very very little about iris fixated lenses. So, at least the track record in the short term has been very good. Now, um, it is a more difficult lens to place, and uh, difficulty of the procedure influences selection. So uh, the posterior chamber lens is less forgiving, but easier. And uh, by that I mean if you're not exceedingly careful as you place the posterior chamber lens, you'll, you'll induce cataract change you know, right, right from your procedure. But the actual doing of it, uh, there, there is no, if it's very delicate, but there's no complicated maneuvers. Enclavation is not easy. It's not, it's not horrendously difficult, but it's a, not an easy step to do. That's a term that, that I wanted to introduce you. Enclavation here, yeah. is the term of, yeah, enclavation is the term of, of uh, having to hold a lens in one hand and, and get the iris strand into the uh, haptics with the other. Right, and how, how, is, that, how is that done technically? I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that, that most of that... Well, you've got a special holder that holds the lens. So you've got to do that through one incision. Then you go through a stab incision, and uh, uh, you have to go in, and it's a little hook-like device, and you have to grab irostroma, and then you, you pull it up through the pincers on the haptics. And uh, uh, holding, it, holding it in one hand and then doing that with the other... Um, is just, I mean, I've, I've only, I mean, I've, I've only played with enclavation. I've never, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I haven't done that lens. We've got uh, people in the department who've taken that on, and, and uh, they tell me that it really isn't that difficult. There's, there's any good cataract surgeon could learn it, but it is a single step that's tricky, whereas there is no single step 
that's new that you have to learn for either an anterior chamber lens or a posterior chamber lens. We certainly have a long track record with AC IOLs. What are phacic AC lenses like, especially vis-a-vis -vis endothelial cell loss? Well, anterior chamber lenses as a pseudophagic correction um, are different from the phacic lenses. Uh, the biggest difference is, is that once you've removed the lens, you've got lots of room. And uh, the iris sits back nicely, and uh, uh, you, the, the secret in regards to anterior chamber lenses is you need enough room to uh, make sure you avoid the corneal endothelium. Uh, throughout the entire breadth of the lens, and you need enough room where, you know, you clear the iris. When you're talking about a phacic lens, even even in a myope, uh, I mean the myope has room, but uh, it's still not as much room. So the design of the lens to make sure that it clears the iris and doesn't chafe on the iris uh, to uh, cause pigment dispersion and other issues but at the same time, clears the corneal endothelium has proven to be tricky. Appropriately sized, uh, and, and that's why you see have seen so many modifications of the anterior chamber lenses to try and get it right, but uh, latest evidence appears to be that, that they've pretty well got that one resolved, but it gets immensely trickier when you're talking hyperopes. Hyperopes, many of them, uh, that simply is not a viable option. There's just not enough room in the angle to be able to get a haptic out there for an anterior chamber lens. The biggest problem with the anterior chamber lenses has been pupil ovalization. And uh, these elliptical pupils uh, always elongate in the axis of the uh, major pressure from the haptics. So almost for sure this is an ischemic change and it's a, it's a loss of the, at the greater arterial circle of some of the radial arterial flow. And therefore, haptic pressure is also a very, very critical. But if you have too little haptic pressure, then the lens tends to move around during saccades and others, and then you get contact with the cornea again. So it's, it's been a tricky combination. And uh, the only lens that anecdotally I've heard seems to have solved all three is the new Alcon lens. I've not seen any studies. I've only heard papers presented. So I'm just telling you from people who've used it, who I trust, uh, who have always been very honest with me, and they tell me it's the first lens, anterior chamber lens they see in which they're not getting pupillary ovalization. Their endothelial cell numbers are very, very good, and they're not getting any, any uh, iris translumination defects or pigment dispersion. So uh, they're they feel like it's going to be a very good lens. But again, you know, what kind of track record are they basing it on? What are the actual numbers? This is That's anecdotal. Uh, they may know more than that, but they're not talking a lot about it. So uh, I wait, but I'm told that that's the only one. All of the other anterior chamber lenses have been plagued with this pupillary ovalization. And at what point post-op does that typically show up? Because presumably... Years, yeah. years. And that's, that's the other issue. Do we have a long enough track record of the outcome to know that ovalization is not an issue? I can't answer that because, I, like I said, I mean, I've not seen anything published and I've not seen any papers with enough long enough follow-up that I said, ooh, can you really make that statement? It's not uncommon that uh, with anterior chamber lenses, these psychic anterior chamber lenses was often taking, you know, six, seven, eight years. And it could be cosmetically very objectionable and, of course, would create glare once it became large enough. 
these people look like they had cat's eyes. I'm sure that they're not very pleased. What are the issues with posterior chamber lenses, and, and do all of these patients need iridotomies? Uh, posterior chamber lens patients uh, need iridotomies. Uh, pupillary block is a concern. Um, the anterior chamber lenses, um, to my knowledge, they also all need an iridotomy or you'll get pupillary block. So those two uh, do need iridotomy, um, and the iris-fixated lenses need an iridotomy. So all of them need an iridotomy. The posterior chamber lens is very clearly um, a, a different set of problems, and uh, uh, the biggest has been cataract formation. Um, and and no, no posterior chamber lens has come through any study without an increased incidence of cataract. So all of them induce some cataract. The, the latest was felt to be a small enough incidence that the FDA approved it, but uh, cataract is, is you're going to induce cataract, and with posterior chamber lenses, it's just, is it enough to worry about? And the other issue is, are these focal cataracts uh, progressive? I mean, the, the evidence at this point is many of them are not progressive, and many of them are visually insignificant. But uh, there have been plenty, certainly, that have become visually significant in the lens, I mean, the, and the cataracts that had to be removed. If you uh, vault carefully so that you are not contacting the lens and there is, uh, the, the human lens, and there is an area of aqueous sitting in there in position, then you run into the second problem they have, and that is uh, contacting the posterior iris surface and producing uh, pigment dispersion, even potentially pigment dispersion glaucoma. Um, <clears throat> those have been the biggest problems. Now, related to that, it's been a big problem, and that's how you size them. Uh, the feeling is, is that uh, this needs to fit appropriately for appropriate vaulting in the ciliary sulcus, and uh, that's why they have different sizes depending upon white to white. But uh, Liliana Warner in our department did a nice little study uh, that's been recently published showing white to white doesn't really correlate with anything in the ciliary sulcus. So. That's the best guess. Um, people are hoping that the new anterior segment uh, OCT will get you true, a true sense of what's happening in the sulcus and that, uh, you know, maybe we can really measure that and get a better job on those problems. But to date, pigment dispersion syndrome and um, cataract formation. And then the medenium lens, the claim is, is that it's not had nearly as much cataract problem, but it's got its own specific problem and uh, that is that it uh, tears through the zonules and dislocates posteriorly. That's a pretty shocking thing to <laughs> have the whole thing disappear back into vitreous. And they, it's not a common, but they've, you know, that continues to be a problem that plagues that lens. Plus, there, there's the concern that if there is a pre-existing defect in the in the zonules, that eventually the posterior chamber lens will will find it and displace from from that. Right. So, yeah. Right, and the, and the feeling is is that uh, um, maybe that's produced at the time you're putting the lens in, mm -hmm. because you're you're really trying carefully not to touch the human lens, so you're putting pressure out in the zonules, or if there is a weakness. But the medenium, that it, that clearly seems to be more of a problem for the medenium, that posterior dislocation. It's got it's got very refined haptics, and it's, it's a stiffer lens than the um, star lens. And uh, so the feeling is, is that it, it may be prone to 
kind of knifing through the zonules if there's already a little defect there. Are posterior chamber lenses a better option for hyperopic patients? Uh, again, you don't have the corneal endothelial problem with the posterior chamber lenses, but uh, in hyperopia, you do have that problem with pigment dispersion syndrome and the fact that in hyperopes that often the iris is already draped right over the lens quite aggressively. So if you put a, a pseudophagic lens in between, you know, what, what are the odds that you can get away without getting a cataract or uh, without getting uh, pigment dispersion syndrome? So it turns out that uh, hyperopia is, is, is a bit of a problem for all three approaches, but um, the most it appears for the anterior chamber lens. Switching topics, uh, what are the intraocular lens options for treating presbyopia? Well, we've got three right now uh, that are approved in the United States, and we've got a bunch of them that uh, are sitting out there in the wings. And so I think the future in that field is very bright. Uh, but the three lens we have, uh, the one lens, the crystal lens, which has been called the one that's the, uh, of the three that's an accommodative lens, but that's been thrown under real question today. Um, the actual measured level of true movement of the lens cannot explain the refractive uh, studies uh, and the refractive results. So uh, I think more and more people feel that it's more of a pseudo-accommodation, um, uh, you know, induced astigmatism in the lens, maybe some induced astigmatism in the cornea. Uh, focal steepening of the actual lens itself has been suggested. So uh, it's not quite as clear how well that particular one works. Uh, it's, uh, it's a lens that seems to uh, give pretty good intermediate vision, uh, not as good near vision, uh, but there are proponents who like it a lot. Uh, then the um, other one is the Restore lens, which uh, has really uh, you know, moved fairly rapidly in the marketplace. Uh, that's a diffractive, and they, they have this apodized diffractive, which is a way to minimize the uh, unwanted images at night. And uh, it, it does significantly decrease nighttime glare and halos, although it does not eliminate them. Uh, there certainly have been people who've, who've insisted on explantation to get rid of the nighttime images, but nothing like the array lens was. And it clearly gives the best reading vision of all three. The reading vision appears to be quite spectacular. But uh, the intermediate vision is not very good. So uh, the patients that, uh, that I've talked to, they'll say, oh, I can read just great with it, and it's easy to read, but you know, I've got to lean too close to the computer, and my intermediate vision is not good. And so they're annoyed about that. The resume lens, by changing the shape of the rings, it's a, a refractive lens. Getting rid of the outer ring, which represented most of the unwanted images for a ray, has also significantly decreased the nighttime images. And I'm not, you know, they're, they're, they're not good studies comparing resume to restore on nighttime images, but what few I saw at ESCRS suggested that uh, they're about the same. They're both substantially better in a ray and that nighttime image issues are about the same. The resume, however, uh, clearly is a better intermediate lens, uh, and the near vision is good, but not as good as resume. So we've got three different lenses, um, and it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how the crystal lens does in this particular market. Um, I haven't seen any figures recently since the battle's been going on, but uh, what I have seen would suggest that right now it's restore 
uh, is number one in that market, Resuma's number two, and Crystalline's third, even though Crystalline's had a head start. We're going to break off with a conversation here. We'll hear the rest of the interview next week. Randall J. Olson is the John A. Moran Presidential Professor and Chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences and Director of the John A. Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. His paper, New Intraocular Lens Technology, appears in the October 2005 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Olson or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.